One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, where the show that explores our guests' lives and life stories through some of the songs that have become bound to their memories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is John McEwen. John grew up in Southern California, where he thought his teenage dream job at Disneyland's Magic Shop was as good as it gets. It was at that job John met his lifelong friend Steve Martin, and it was around that time stringed instruments came into his life, first guitar and then banjo. After seeing the Missouri bluegrass group The Dillards, John's life headed towards his new dream of making magic with music, and he's been a traveling music man pretty much ever since. John's a multi-instrumentalist. He plays banjo, guitar, mandolin, and fiddle, and he's founding member of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, which he played and toured with for 50 years before pivoting to focus on his own music in 2017. He's made almost 50 albums, including seven solo, that have earned four platinum and five gold records, multi-Grammy awards and nominations, and CMA and ACM awards. One of his film scores was nominated for an Emmy, and he's performed on another 25 albums as guest artist. John produced Steve Martin's 2010 album The Crow, which won a Grammy for Best bluegrass album. He was inducted in 2017 to the American Banjo Museum Hall of Fame, and his popular Sirius XM Acoustic Traveler show is now in its 14th year. John's also an author. His bio, The Life I've Picked, was published in 2018, and the list of his accomplishments, accolades, and collaborations goes on and on, but we've only got so much time, so let's get right to John's three song stories. Hey there, John. How are you today? I'm pretty good. I'm talking to Mike. <laughs> yeah, yes, you are. I am. Uh, I am so happy to have you. We are honored to have you. Like I said, so thanks for doing this. Um, before we start talking music and stuff, I read that you've traveled like literally millions of miles over your career. Do you have any tips for travelers? You know, things you've picked up over those many miles. Well, it's been on a bus, in a rental car, on train, uh, four million miles flying. And any tips? Always keep your luggage with you. <laughs> ah, okay. So you're not a luggage check kind of guy. Oh, let's put this luggage in the other bus and you go in this one. No, I'll keep it with me. Let's put this <laughs> luggage on the other flight. No, I'll keep it with me. Huh. Let's put the luggage in the other car. No, I'll keep it with because you'll always get separated from your luggage. And always take your wallet on stage. There. Take your wallet on stage. Is that because you might need to spend money or because somebody might steal it? Oh, you might get it lifted from the dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you grew up in Southern California, if I've got it straight. How would you describe the musical background of your childhood? Uh, there wasn't much, really. I didn't start listening to music till I was about 15 when my brother started playing the guitar. And then when I was 16, 17, at 17, I got my first guitar, and I played that for six months. And listen to the records he was listening to and Jimmy Reed, Hank Williams and uh, Lightning Hopkins and stuff like that. And then by 17 and a half, I couldn't play anything that he couldn't, that he could play. I mean, I, everything I knew he'd taught me. So I ran into the five string banjo at 17 and a half by the way of the Dillards. And that sparked me, boy, the Dillards were the Darlin family on the Andy Griffith show which I didn't know yet, but they were incredible. They were a perfect combination of the Smothers Brothers and Flatten Scruggs. Hmm. They were really, 
really funny and fast and good and everything. And Roddy Diller's a lifelong friend now. So uh, I remember when I was nine years old, I played Hank Williams Sr.'s version of Jambalaya about 30 times at my aunt's little restaurant up in the mountains of outside of MacArthur. And I just loved that fiddle solo. And I couldn't, I didn't know what music was. I just knew there were different sounds. And Jambalaya by Hank Williams really got me, but I didn't hear it again for, for years. And then later on, I met the fiddle player. He was, became my agent. <laughs> Seems like your career has been filled with you admiring people who you later became friends with. That must be a pretty cool uh, life path. Well, it's, it's interesting because some of the people were at the same stage I was. I met this young Puerto Rican kid when he first came out to L.A. from New York. It was in, uh, I think, in 65, 66. And we drive around. We play a few folk clubs. Hey, can my friend come in and can we play a few songs? Yeah, what's the deal with the dog? Well, he's blind. Oh, okay. And that was Jose Feliciano. Huh. And, and I didn't know it, but he called me up one day and said, Hey, hey, John, can you take me to a concert, a gig at, at uh, Irvine College? And I figured he's playing some little coffee house. And I went to this gymnasium, and it was packed with people there to see Jose. I didn't realize his version of Light My Fire was burning up the charts. And <laughs> he became a star then, uh, and, and that started happening, you know. Yeah, and I ended up, I played with him. I've recorded with him and, and uh, played with him. Played with him a few years ago in New York. That was fun. And anyway. Yeah, well, and I also read that you, uh, there was you, something like you booked like Bob Dylan's first West Coast show in 1966 or something like that. What was that all about? Oh, <laughs> yeah. In 1966, I was approached by the owner of a club that says, I need some money. I need $2,500. I'm trying to book this guy at the, at the high school. So I put up 2500 He put up 2500 and we booked Bob Dylan. I was 19, 20 years old. I had to borrow the money from my father who said, well, I don't know, but uh, if you're, he believed in my passion. And six weeks later, when I paid, paid the loan off, he said, well, that's a pretty good deal. <laughs> and I made about uh, 2100 profit, and I bought a banjo. And it was a Bob Dylan show. It was sold out at a high school. I got to get the first row. That's as close as I got to Dylan. <laughs> hmm. I saw his limousine pull up at the side door, the entrance to the theater. He gets out of the car with a harp rack and a guitar, walks to the stage, and sings for an hour and 15 minutes, and then gets back in the car. I thought, that's an easy way to pick up five grand. And uh, really, it was cool. Um, so your dad was impressed with your ability to make a little money as a promoter. How were your folks about you deciding to pursue music as, you know, forthrightly as you did? Oh, my mother was totally behind it. My father said, I think this music thing, you're going down the wrong road. You're going to end up playing in bars and people smoking and drinking and nobody's listening. And he's right. If that was my aim, but my, that wasn't my aim. And he said about a year and a half later that keep it up. And then he passed away. 
the song, the band in its early stages. Hmm. Um, did you, when you got that banjo, did you take right to it? Was it, a, were you, a, you know, a quick study on, on stringed instruments or was it something you had to really work at? When I got my first banjo, I played it probably eight or 10 hours a day. And I was, I, I was told I was pretty good right out of the box, but, uh, I wasn't as good as, I wasn't nearly as good as the people I was trying to learn from and nobody had heard the banjo that much. It was kind of like finding a hooker in Disneyland, finding a banjo player out there. And uh, <laughs> it was <clears throat> not that I've looked for either, but um, <laughs> I started teaching about nine months after I started playing. And I was a 18, 19 year old making two or three hundred dollars a week. It was a pretty good life going to college and stuff. And it was a wonderful time. Um, I tied that, tied that together with my job in Disneyland and working at the magic shop, a job I got at 16 years old and did for three years. And that was a dream job. Steve Martin and I were both trying for the same job and we got it the same day and we celebrated by having lunch in Tomorrowland. Wow, that's a quite, that's quite a sentence, John. Um, I love it. Um, so you, I read that you basically thought that that ma- magic shop job was kind of like like the perfect job. Like, you know, could you have done that for the rest of your life, or was that just a, a, a flash in the pan? Next to the shop I was working in, doing tricks in all day, there was a jukebox at the Worcester Center, and people would play this. Paul Simon is the guy's name. He had a group called Simon and Garfunkel and sitting in the railroad station, got a ticket for my destination. He'd play Homeward Bound, and those words really got to me. And I thought, that sounds really neat, being a musician and on the road and playing a different city. And and what's strange is 10 years ago, I sat in the old Saybrook, Connecticut railroad station and got a picture taken. Old Saybrooks is in Connecticut where Catherine Hepburn is from. I played the Catherine Hepburn Theater, as a matter of fact, and I got to live the words of that song. Uh, you mentioned Steve Martin. Did you guys, like, were you competitive banjo players? Were you Because I know he's a banjo player, and we'll get to more about that later with your produ- producing work, but uh, were you guys kind of working, working each other up or trying to learn from each other or teaching each other? No, not competitive at all. Steve was a, a great student. He was my first student. He was uh, he was not musical at all, and he was slow to pick things up off records. I was a little faster, so I'd show him what I figured out, and he'd get half of it and move on. And I always thought he was really creative. You know, these days um, we've got the internet. It's easy to look up, you know, sheet music tabs, you know, songs, ways to you. Know, you can even pull it up and shift the different keys that it's in. Back then, were you like, was it? Would you have to go out and get music books or something, or was it all by ear, just by listening to songs on records? You take the record and you slow it down to sixteen and two thirds from thirty-three and a third. You half speed. It was in an octave lower, and. And you could hear the notes. You could figure it out. You could find them if you looked hard enough. Hey, they were all there. <laughs> and then you'd, you'd, you'd learn the song at half speed and speed it up and try to play it. <laughs> and be astonished at how fast it was, if it was a fast one. And 
that's what that's the way uh, a lot of people learned. And there was tablature, which is notation written out in a way that you can read it. It's not reading music, but it is music. Tablature, people know what that is. And then I learned to read music, and I became very slow at it. <laughs> so I quit pursuing that. You know, I just watched uh, the documentary on Hulu. It's um, uh, Rick Rubin and uh, Paul McCartney sitting around a record, uh, a big soundboard in a studio by themselves and um, telling stories and listening to the different, you know, they can isolate the different tracks of the different songs. And Paul McCartney told a story about, you know, they, the Beatles did innovative things in the studio. Sometimes they would actually record an octave lower at a slower speed and then speed it up for what was on the record. And I, that was totally novel to me. Is that something you're familiar with? I've done that a couple times. I'd, I'd put a, a bass part on a song. I wanted it to sound like a guitaron, you know, the Mexican bass in a mariachi band. So I, I took my acoustic guitar and I tuned it a couple frets low and and I sped the tape up double speed and played and then slowed it down. It was you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it came out cool. <laughs> That's uh, a recording called Jesse Polka. You can look that up on my song list on Spotify or something. I think of that. That's from the Wild Music of the Wild West album. That's a, an album I did from the soundtrack, The Wild West, a 10-hour miniseries I did the music score for, for Warner Brothers. And it got an Emmy nomination. I was proud of that. And uh, anyway, that was for Jesse Polka, just me and a fiddle player. Byron Berline, one of the best. Fantastic. Well, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, but we only have a limited amount of time. So let's get to your first song. This is uh, the Gloria, Gloria Gaynor song, right? Yeah, kind of a uh, people wouldn't expect that, but this is a great record. You know, it, it really tells it like uh, it, this song didn't really hit me until I was getting separated and leading to a divorce in the late 80s. And uh, I heard it, and it was like, oh, my gosh, she really nailed it. So I just turned it into a, a being a guy song. <laughs> hmm. and, uh, but, yeah, it's, it's really good. So when you listen to and, and Oh, go, go, yeah. Strange about it, the woman I was going to meet five years later, it was one of her favorite songs. <laughs> so just in talking about music, I was a, a banjo fiddle player and she didn't have any idea that I knew about Gloria Gaynor. So, so here it is. I will survive. So when you hear it today, do you remember the, the hard times or do you remember the connection with who you met afterwards or both? I remember that I will survive. That, that uh, This was at a time when I was, I'd left the dirt band I was leaving a marriage with six children and a wife, two dogs and a cat. I was separated. I was in living in my friend's basement at 9,000 feet in Colorado. And this song came on the radio a lot. And I listened to you, Gloria. Thank you. 
Well, let's listen to, to this, imagining you being up in the mountains. Uh, this is John McEwen's first song today on Three Song Stories. It's I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor from her 1978 album Love Tracks. I didn't think I'd survive. You know, I would married 18 years. Time to get a divorce comes up, and uh, and it took a couple years, and it happened, and it was kind of a difficult thing. But um, I got through it. You ever meet Gloria over the course of your storied, oh, no. storied oh, career? No, no. I haven't. I haven't. But uh, I can't believe all the people I have met either before or since then. Since then, for sure. And Garth Brooks uh, <laughs> came up to me years ago and says, I've been always wanting to meet you. You're one of my blah, blah, blah. And I really... Uh, yeah, he said, you jumped in front of me with a fiddle when I was going to college, and I've never forgotten that. <laughs> wow. And, you know, Dolly Parton and Willie Nelson, I've met him, recorded with him, recorded a project with him, and uh, he and uh, I put him and Paul Williams together doing Rainbow Connection for a DVD, and uh, Leon Russell was a lifetime friend. And we made a couple recordings together. That was fun. That's what I'm bringing to Fort Myers, to the Sydney Byrne Art Center. I'm looking forward to that. I'm bringing all this history. And Les Thompson, the original Nitty Gritty Dirt Band bass player, the guy who called me in 1966 and said he was 15 years old, maybe 16, and said, hey, John, the guys at the music store are putting a, a group together. Want to come be part of it? And I went, Okay, I'll give it a shot. And that was the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. How old were you when that happened? I was 20 years old. 20 years old. Les was 16. The other guys were 18 and 19. Did you have bands prior to that, or was that your first go-round? Well, uh, Les and I had had a group the year before that uh, called the Woolmore City Moonshiners. And that information can be found on my website which my mother thought of the name is John McEwen. <laughs> I, I added .com. Les and I had a group for about six or seven months that copied the Dillards and other bluegrass groups. We weren't any good, really, but we, we had a lot of energy, and we played a lot of pizza parlors and stuff like that. Uh, what was the name of that band? Did it have a name? Was it around long enough to have a name? <laughs> yeah, Wilmore City Moonshiners. Wilmore City was the name of Old Long Beach previous name of Long Beach, California, oh. where we started. And, um, uh, so, so, uh, so you went to high school in the, in the, in the early to mid-60s, if I'm doing the math right. Where did you fit into the scene in high school? Were you the musician guy that walked around with his well, guitar, or what were you like? I was, uh, when I got to high school, I was a, kind of a, a nerd. And by my sophomore year, I became a dork. And, <laughs> and I was kind of like... You know, I had three friends, and it was kind of quiet. And uh, I, I started playing the banjo my into my senior year, but nobody knew it. And Steve and I were working in Disneyland, and that summer, uh, just before senior year, was a, a glorious year. That's when I became myself. I was getting enough money to buy gas for my car, and I was playing the banjo, and it was really fun. It was really, well, I wasn't playing the banjo yet. That was the next year. And uh, it was a great time. 
It's a great time right now. I'm going to have a great time at the Art Center in, in Fort Myers. The Les Thompson is coming, and, and I got a new guy, um, Danny Nicely. He's a heck of a guitar player. He plays everything I wish I could play and sings great. And Jay Robert. You know Jay Robert? You know that name? I don't. Who is it? You should get to know him. He's, a, he's Florida's finest fiddler. I'm going to have him sit in with me. He's from Manco Island. Uh, oh, no. No, it's just a minute. Marco. Jay Robert. Here, here, yeah. Jay Robert. He's Florida's finest fiddle player, and he's from Marco Island. And, well, he's been playing around the area off and on, but I love it when he gets to sit in, when I get him. He has his own Florida fiddler show, apparently. Huh. Well, I'll be at the gig, uh, and I'll so okay. I can so I can. I mean, I live a, a half mile from the art center, so I'll be there, and I'll you'll have to introduce me to him, and I'll look forward to meeting oh, you, sure. meeting you in person. You haven't happened. This is a crazy aside, but you haven't ever happened to have heard of David Mayfield, have you? Uh, no. Okay, he played there at the art center a couple weekends ago. Uh, he's been on this show too. He's a he's a a, a bluegrass kind of guy. You, uh, you should look him up. He's he's fun to be around, and he he and his team do amazing stuff. Um, you mentioned you went to college after high school. Uh, did you go to college for music? Did you finish college? Like what was well, that? What was that about? I went to college. I was a math major, and by the second year, I realized I was done. I was spending more time learning how to play music, eight, like eight and 10 hours a day in the practice rooms at the school. And, and I got my first D in college in calculus. That was really depressing. I found out you have to study this stuff. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I crammed for a calculus test and ended up getting like a, a, D, on, a D on it. It was a, a final. And it was, anyway, I realized then I wasn't a math major. What what, what what made you choose math? I mean, were you going to go on and become a, a mathematician or a math teacher or a, a numbers person? You know, I, I don't think very many people at 17 and 18 years old know why they choose certain things. And most people change their majors. I chose math because I had I was good at math and anal- analytical uh, analytical trigonometry was was fun. It was disappointing because the teacher said, just remember, there's no practical use for this knowledge outside of this classroom. (laughs) (laughs) Analytical trig. Is Uh, there any um, uh, connection between being good at math and numbers and being able to move that stuff around in your head and making music? uh, I don't know. I think that's one thing that appealed to me about the banjo was the eighth notes, you know, and the way they go by. But it's not a conscious thing if it, there is one. It might be one of those things that's in the back of your brain that you don't know about. And uh, anyway, I started playing, and then I was going to Long Beach State College, and then I went to Santa Monica, no, Santa Ana Junior College, and uh, I did that, did it for two years, and then started playing in the dirt band. So, uh, originally called Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, where'd that name come from? Well, in the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Oh, it's a really interesting story. <laughs> Not. <laughs> one, guy, <laughs> one guy says, I want to call it the Dirt Band. The other guy says, I want to call it the Nitty Gritty Band. Uh, well, let's call it Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Okay. That was how long it took. 
That was Les and one of the other guys <laughs> that uh, came up with that. Were you um, an outlier out there in Southern California playing that kind of music? A lot of people were outliers in California at the time. Some of them were getting on the radio, you know. Uh, the Birds, Buffalo Springfield, they weren't known. They, were, they didn't know they were going to be popular, but they sure got popular. One of the reasons I got on the air, got on radio, wanted to get in a band, was I was driving to college one day and Turn, Turn came on. You know, the bird song, Turn, Turn. Oh, yeah. And I pulled over and I listened to it. I said, that is the best music I've ever heard. I wonder who it is. And, it, oh, it's the birds. And Chris Hillman, I knew, was in a group called Scottsville Squirrel Barkers from San Diego. He was a he was a mandolin player, and he's and he was playing bass on the record. That's the Birds. Yeah, I know that group. They're just coming on, and they're doing a Pete Seeger song, "Turn Turn." I do the song from Pete Seeger, and it's on pop radio. Wow, I can get there too, but I don't have a group. And it was a, a couple years later I ended up with the group, and and Chris Hillman's a friend now. I've played a lot of shows with him. How long were you guys um, making music before it started to feel like you were really gaining some traction and, you know, you felt confident that you had a future with the band? I think it's been about 48 years. <laughs> <laughs> and two years later, I left. <laughs> no, it was like we were very lucky. My brother managed us from the beginning and took photographs and produced our records eventually. and. We got together, uh, did our first rehearsal in August 1966, and by the following February, we had our first chart record, Buy For Me The Rain, which I do a little bit of in the show that I'm going to do. Les and I got that on the radio. It was amazing. It was a miracle. It was only six, seven months after we started, and I was wondering, what took so long? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I hadn't even changed my strings a dozen times, and and we were on the radio, and it was amazing. We did our first important gig five months after we started at the Ash Grove, which is now called the Improv in Hollywood, and it was with Merle Travis. We were opening for Merle Travis, who we'd end up recording with five years later, and not knowing it then, but and that was wonderful. But here we were in February on a show with a hit record. And what a sh one show was at the Birmingham High School. Can you imagine this? <laughs> the Doors, the Birds, the Jefferson Airplane, the Association, and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band on the same show for $6? At a high school? Oh, yeah, high school football field. It was 1967. <laughs> Nobody had done concerts yet, you know? No big outdoor things there was ten thousand people there and uh that was the biggest crowd i'd ever seen i had to get we were on early because we only had one hit and oh everybody only had one hit but theirs were bigger one pill makes you smaller you know uh, alice cooper and doors break on through the other side i think was no maybe it was light by fire but uh anyway i had to get I wanted to get done early so I could go see Bill Monroe at the Ash Grove that night. <laughs> I ended up sitting in with him, too. That's how crazy it was back then. 
you ended up doing some touring with The Doors, didn't you? Did I read that? We did about a dozen shows with The Doors. That was a case of you have the same agency, and the agency will tell the promoter, and here's your opening act, you know? And they have a minor hit. That should help the show. And and sometimes it works, and sometimes it didn't. I mean, what I mean is, is sometimes we could work, and it would go over. But it was basically a jug band in 1967, you know, with one radio song. And we didn't even have drums or electric bass. <laughs> Who do these people think they are out there? We did a dozen shows with Bobby Sherman, too. That was really fun. He was good. You know, a jug band playing with the doors seems like an odd fit. Yeah, but we had a chart record, and that's what made it work. Gotcha. Buy For Me the Rain would shut them up, and then we'd leave the stage. (laughs) (laughs) They'd they'd applaud, and we'd go. And the music was, was fun, and it was evolving. You know, we made our first album. We only knew 14 songs. We recorded 12 of them. <laughs> How quickly did you then start churning out records? Maybe churning out is the wrong phrase, but you know what I mean. Oh, slowly? Uh, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> so what? So maybe not quickly. Uh, no, it wasn't quickly. We we got our second album out. We, we Actually, we made four albums up through 1968 and then got a job doing Paint Your Wagon, the movie. The, the musical movie uh, with Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood. We were the band. We were the miners playing Hand Me Down That Can of Beans. Spent four months on the set in Baker, Oregon, doing that part. That sounds like a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Watching Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin lip-syncing, learning how to sing, and it was like really weird because it really looks real. You're in the middle of an 18... 18- 60, 1850s campground or an old town. And it really looked like a new old town. Uh, Alan Truscott was the set designer and he just came off from winning an Oscar for set design on Camelot. So he had an open ticket and everything was real. It was really neat. And uh, we sat around in period clothes all day long waiting to get called for the shot. For four months. Um, did that pay pretty good at that point in time in your career? Oh, yeah. That was that was SAG after scale. Well, it was just SAG then. I still make $50 a year from that film. <laughs> <laughs> it plays on cable somewhere, and it buys me a dinner every year. It's pretty cool. That's cool. Okay, well, we'll get further into your career. We're up to 1970 now, but let's do your second song first. This is the uh, the song by the band, right? Oh, yeah. This fits right in with, uh, when we were in Baker, this album came out by a group called The Band. And I got a hold of it, and uh, I'd come home from the set, and I'd put this record on, and I'd play this song over and over, and I loved this guy's voice, and I loved the group. They were using acoustic instruments with drums, and Jeff liked it too. And anyway, this is a song that really turned the dirt band towards making more commercial music hmm well let's listen to it thinking of that this is the weight um also kind of subtitled take the load off 
Annie by the band, released in 1968 on their debut album, Music from the Big Pink. It's John McEwen's second song on this week's episode of Three Song Stories. It's biography through music. So you said that hearing that song kind of changed your perspective of what you wanted to do with your band. Can you explain like what happened, how that shift occurred? It started with acoustic guitar right up in front. He had a magical voice. The drums were part of the music, but they weren't dominant. Levon had a way of hitting those drums. That was magic. It was, uh, I didn't know him then at all, but uh, later on, fast forward, I played, he called me up to play at his Woodstock, uh, New York place for his 70th birthday party. That was quite an honor. <laughs> I'd played with him a couple times before that. I played that song with the band in Minnesota and uh, some other, oh, in a couple places in Minnesota, actually. And uh, after I got to know them. And it's just that the music was kind of like what I wanted to make, you know, be part of. And and that's what we became. That's what Bojangles was to me. I played mandolin on Bojangles. Les played the bass. And uh, it was a, an acoustic song with one electric instrument on it, the bass, and with drums. And some of Shelley's blues, same kind of thing. Some of Shelley's blues was the uh, first hit. House of Pooh Corner was a little more drums than electric bass, but had acoustic piano. Thank you, band. And uh, then Bojangles, which was really a folk song <laughs> that was on the charts for 38 weeks. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I was going to say that song really was maybe your first one that really blew up. It was. It was. Uh, well, House of Pooh Corner was a, a what they called then a regional hit. Some markets it was top five or number one. Some places it was only 18 or 19. That was Kenny Loggins' first recording. I remember I had to call Kenny. I said, hey, Kenny, I hate to tell you this, but Disney's not going to let us put Pooh Corner out. He goes, oh, man, what a bummer. My first recording going out, and now it's not going to come out. And he's, he's whining. Disney had said, we own Winnie the Pooh. You can't put out that song. And they called the record company and told them. And, and Kenny told his girlfriend, says, what's the matter, Kenny? Oh, Disney said they, they won't let the band put out House of Pooh Corner. Well, let me talk to my daddy. What does your father do? Well, he's the president of, and CEO of Disney. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, the record company got a call saying, yeah, they can put it out. Okay, thank you. And it became a top 20 record. Kenny was, has always uh, recounted that story. Met Kenny, but he, before he recorded with anyone and, I made a demo with him doing five songs in my living room in Laurel Canyon. And that was really fun. Just him and his guitar. I got Pooh Corner and Danny's song and, and Yukon Railroad and Prodigal's Return. It's uh, just him and his guitar at 18 years old. Mm. One of and the, oh, go ahead. It's just one of the things I've managed to collect over the years. Like I have the Allman Brothers, just not my cross to bear. The first recording, the week, the week Greg wrote it in a living room in a, in a sleazy apartment in Hollywood. And uh, I went there and set up and recorded the slowest version of just not my crush to bear. 
<laughs> it was really slow, but it was really good. He was, uh, that was before the Almond Brothers. And uh, about four or five months later, he flew out to Jacksonville or Gainesville to start the Almond Brothers with Greg. And uh, time went on. The dirt band is out there slogging away. Uh, well, all these people are kind of coming and going. And uh, just, I did that for 50 years and got off the bus at the end of 50 years and said, see you guys later. I'm going to go work on my own. I got stories of the Circle album to tell. And I'll, I'll ask you about the Circle in just a second here. Um, uh, have you done a good job of, of being a, a, an archivist of, you know, having tape and, and recordings and, and maybe photographs of your life and kept them in a way that they've been preserved? I think I've done an okay job. Uh, I've done a, a much better job than some musicians I know because I have a lot of stuff and I've kept it, posters and records. And I have the first recording I made with, with Les back in For the Dirt Band and stuff like that. And But I, I got to put it in better order. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to put you on yeah. the spot. I've got a file with a bunch of drawers, 40, 50 drawers that have descending. Anyway, uh, various stuff. Um, before I uh, ask you about uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken project, um, I just wanted to read you. I went back and listened to Mr. Bojangles before we did this interview, um, and I found a live version that you guys did at some point in time. And it's on YouTube, which, you know, YouTube is a great resource. And the comment section usually on YouTube is just toxic, so I usually don't even look at it. But I thought you would appreciate the very first comment uh, on the the live recording said, my parents would play this song and dance to it every year on their anniversary. Now they play it, hold hands, and stare at each other with tears in their eyes. Aw, I haven't heard that one before. Must be nice to make that kind of impression on people throughout your life doing something you love. It's a surprise. It's nice. And it is a, a privilege and an honor to be a part of some people's lives. I've heard, we met with that song. We, uh, I uh, was in Vietnam, and that brought me home. Uh, I just got home from Vietnam, and that made me feel like being here. And, you know, various, various things. Um, I heard a lot from, from veterans and, and then over the years from other people. I <laughs> heard some from Jerry Jeff, too, like, thanks. um so uh 1971 uh will the circle be unbroken album um you hooked up the the nitty-gritty dirt band with a bunch of different people can you kind of just tell a short version of that story for our listeners who who may not know what we're talking about the circle be unbroken album will the circle be unbroken is an album the nitty-gritty dirt band did produced by my brother bill McEwen, who was managing the group and shot all the photos and it had Roy Acuff, Mabel Carter, Doc Watson, Vassar Clements, um, Jimmy Martin, uh, Earl Scruggs, and a, a few other people. And it was 36 songs recorded in five days in Nashville in 1971. And it is in the Grammy Hall of Fame and the Library of Congress. And it still sells to this day on Amazon in the top 20 or 30 on three different charts. And it's a principal reason I'm out there. I'm, I'm telling on my show the story of the early Dirt Band when Les and I were out there 
doing 200 dates a year, trying to get to the top 10. And then the story of when this album came together, a lot of the music comes from the Circle Be Unbroken album. And with film, I have footage and, well, uh, eight millimeter of the early dirt band and all the stills. My brother shot 150 of them. And it's told in front of the screen as the music is played on stage. It's really a compelling multimedia show because we cover early dirt band hits and bluegrass and, and some of my music from my Made in Brooklyn album. I made an album called Made in Brooklyn a couple years ago, pre-COVID, that got some recognition, and we do a couple songs from that. And it's a, quite an interesting show, if I do say so myself. <laughs> I look forward to it. Um, when you were putting, when you know, when you got all those people together for those five days, or I think you said five days, um, did it feel like magic was happening? Did it feel like, you know, would you have been surprised if somebody said this is going to be in the Library of Congress someday? We didn't. My brother and I put it together, and I asked Earl Scruggs in the first week of June when he was in Boulder, Colorado, if he wanted to record with the Vanity Gritty Dirt Band. And he said, I'd be proud to. I had met him the previous October when he came to see the Dirt Band play Vanderbilt with his, came with his whole family. And a week later, I asked Doc Watson, who was playing the same club in Colorado where I was living, I asked him, well, I said to Doc, hey, Doc, uh, I'm John McEwen from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and we're making an album with Earl Scruggs. We weren't making the album yet. I asked him if he wanted to be part of it. And he said, well, if Earl's going to be there, I want to pick. And so we had two. I told my brother that on Monday he got Merle Travis. On Tuesday, we asked Earl if he could get Maybell Carter. On Thursday, he told us he got Maybell Carter. And then we asked his wife to get Jimmy Martin. On Friday, she told me she had Jimmy Martin. And the next week, a couple other people came together. And that was the week we told the Dirt Band we're going to Nashville to record, told the other guys. Because the project had to come together and had to be something before it was just happening. And we went and... My brother and I had listened to all of Jimmy Martin's music. Jeff didn't know who Jimmy Martin was, but that was okay. I said, you'll, you'll find out. And they became good friends. I was proud of that. And uh, everybody knew who Maybell Carter was. And I didn't know that the Uncle Charlie and his dog Teddy album, the one with Al Pooh Corners, Summer Shelley's Blues, and Mr. Bojangles, I put two bluegrass songs on that album, one Earl Scruggs tune and one Ralph Stanley tune. The Ralph Stanley tune was called Clinch Mountain Backstep, and that's where that's where Doc Watson was from, the Clinch Mountains, hmm. and that's where that's where Earl Scruggs was from. And anyway, it was it was a, kind of a good because they heard that album. Their sons played it for them, and it was really neat. And uh, anyway, yeah, we got to Nashville, and we were strutting in high cotton and we really uh were worried the first day but we found out that these people were all such fans of each other that it took the pressure off and junior husky the bass player he he knew all of them he played on the opry with all of them he was the opry bass player and it was like junior was just 
Mr. Nice Guy. And Roy Acuff, Maybell Carter, Maybell will say, Roy, I've always wanted to make a recording with you. Well, Maybell, I'm really glad we're here to do that. And, you know, uh, Doc Watson and Merle Travis and Doc Watson and Vassar and Vassar Clements, the fiddle player, it all just came together. Really wonderful. When you uh, walked out of the studio, when you knew it was in the can, it had been put down on tape, and somebody else could finish putting it together, how did that feel? Well, there's somebody else putting it together was my brother, Bill. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you, you, were, you were more intimately involved than I described. <laughs> yeah, I, I took a copy of the tape home with me, and oh, man, I listened to that copy of The Master. It was the best sounding. The instrument sounded great, and I didn't have a sequence, but Bill was sequencing and editing. It took him three months. Because back in those days, you had to do it with a razor blade. And we recorded two track. So we were recording to the master. And if you go in and cut the master tape in the wrong place, you're uh, kind of up a bad alley there. And uh, had to be real careful. And he wanted to insert the talking that is so, such an important part of the album that people have told me for years, oh, it's wonderful to hear those people talk. And, and all these speeches were recorded by a tape that was running the whole time. I got to change the reels on that. <laughs> it was running slowly, three and three quarters inches per second. And the master tape was running at 30 inches per second. So uh, I only had to change the talking tape about every hour and a half. And uh, anyway, that was the process. My brother put the cover idea together and got Dean Torrance to work on it and sequenced it, edited it, and... Oh, my gosh, did that come out being a beautiful package? I'm glad I didn't do it. It would have been me and Earl and Doc in front of a bus with a band. <laughs> uh, John, I can listen to you talk all day, tell stories. Um, uh, before we get to your third song, um, uh, Russia, you were the first group in the U.S. to play there in the late 70s, right? In 1977, May, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band became the first American group to go to Russia. What a mysterious place. And we played five cities, 28 sold-out shows, and they were wonderful. In fact, they went over so well, they didn't let another group in, American group, for about eight years. <laughs> and people were on their feet. They were dancing. They were rushing the stage in a country where it was illegal to stand up at a concert. They ended up getting free and standing up and coming up to the stage. And I remember Irina, one of the party members who was a road manager, says, we get to Leningrad. It will not be a, a rowdy audience like it has been in Armenia and, and in, Lith uh, in Latvia. Leningrad will be very respectful. You will get possibly an encore, but it will be more respectful. And we were in Leningrad, the first show. We're coming off stage after the third encore. People are standing up. They're up by the front of the stage, hands in the air, clapping. And we're getting ready to go out and do the fourth encore. A girl has run up on stage and kissed Jeff. A guy has come up and played air guitar with one of us and, and been shuffled off. And, and Irena's in the wing. She goes, 
I never thought in Leningrad, in Leningrad. Anyway, it was really fun. And these people must have been hearing your music for the first time, right? I can't imagine that that your your albums were making it into Russia in the 70s, or were they? Nobody was. I mean, I signed a couple albums. I signed a Temptations album that was 10 years old, uh, and a Aretha Franklin Allen album that was about 12 years old, and none of our stuff. It was illegal to have things imported, you know. It was illegal. I didn't find that out till the first concert. I went to a guy's house. He was interested in the banjo, I was told. And I sat down and played it for him in his living room. And I told him, oh, here, yeah, you go to this music store and order this book, and you can get the instrument here. And you could... And he started crying. And I'm going, what are, what are, I'm asking the translator, what have I said wrong? He says, well, everything you're telling him to do is illegal. He can't use foreign currency because it's three-year jail sentence to possess it. If he tries to send foreign currency to get one of those things, he'll get put in jail. If he tries to request a book that hasn't been approved, he'll get put in jail. If he tries on and on, nothing he could do. He could just listen. And uh, pretty uptight. (laughs) That was what I found out the second day there. And it got worse. But it got better at the same time. It was a, it was okay. And Russia's pretty screwed up, but everybody knows that now. Um, real quick, uh, Fish, nineteen ninety six. Tell us the story. We have an inside joke on this show about Fish and their long songs. So you got to sit in with Fish because you took your son to a concert or something like that. A couple of my sons took me to see the band Fish in Salt Lake at a club in their early years. I thought they were pretty good. We went home. Then. One of my sons was out on the road following him and said, I said, what do you want for your birthday? Because I want you to go to a fish concert with me. So I said, well, pick a city. I'm heading to the road. I can tie it in. And I went to Sacramento. And I look in the newspaper to see where fish is playing. And it's the Arco Arena. And it says sold out. I go, oh, my God, the Arco Arena is 14,000 people. They've sold it out. And so I I call Ryan and I said, well, meet me at the stage door at 4 o'clock. We'll go to the sound check. Well, how do you know they're going to do a sound check? Ryan, everybody does a sound check, and it's usually 4 o'clock. If not, it'll be 5. So let's go. And we're standing outside of the auditorium, the uh, concert hall, and at 5 minutes to 4, he's really nervous. There's nobody here. There's no- ah, you hear that low sound? That's the diesel bus. And this bus comes around the corner, and they're heading to the loading ramp. I said, there they are, ready for their sound check. And Trey Anastasio was up in the front, and he gets stepped off the bus and says, John McEwen, hey, you going to sit in with us tonight? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, nice to meet you. I've been wanting to meet you guys since my son's uh, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Brian, go get my instruments. If we can have dinner, I'd be glad to. And that was when I met them. And then that relationship developed into something where I ended up booking them uh, at the Millennial Show on the Swamp in Florida. Chief Jim Billy, who is a guy I produced an album on, Chief Jim Billy has the Seminole Swamp, Big Cypress. That's where they fish did the Millennium Show. Mm-hmm. And that was really a blast, 80,000 people. Wow. So you had a hand in putting that show together? The The manager called me and said, we just got kicked out of wherever it was, some other place. 
we have two days to find a place where we can't do a millennium show. And I said, I got a place for you. I told you about it. Call me in one hour. And he called back in an hour. I talked to the chief, Chief Jim Billy, and I said, okay, it's called the Big Cypress Swamp. It will hold 80,000 people. It's uh, no rules, but you got to be nice as all, well, because it was on an Indian reservation. And the fish organization came in and set up and did their thing. It was when they left, it was all perfectly clean and everything. It was a fun night, fun weekend. You know, if, if you have a son who was following fish, he must think dad's pretty cool for all the things he'd done, but particularly that. <laughs> that was a good thing. We got, we got a, a motor home backstage and, a, and, and stage passes and stuff, and I sat in with him. That was fun. Wow. That was the fourth time I sat in with him, I think. All right. Well, let's do your third song here, uh, One Morning in May. Would you like to tell well, a story, in, or what's the deal? When I was in Russia, I took a couple of cassettes with me. One of them was Bill Keith and Jim Rooney. And a song, One Morning in May, had struck me as being a weird, unusual, neat song that just took me away. And I'd play it every morning. And uh, it's one of my favorite songs. Did, one Morning in May by Bill Keith and Jim Rooney. Did you have headphones? I mean, was that like, was there Walkmans by then? Or how, was, how, how would you listen to it while you were in Russia? I had headphones, and uh, it was mainly through headphones, yeah. Hmm. So let's listen to that, thinking about you being in Russia, listening to it every morning. This is One Morning in May by Bill Keith and Jim Rooney, released uh, on their 1963 album Living on the Mountain. It's John McEwen's third and final song here on Three Song Stories. See the water's gliding, hear the nightingale When's the last time you listened to that? Uh... About a month ago. <laughs> uh, I have it on a, a, a playlist that I use to go to sleep to <laughs> sometimes. First time I listened to it was 1964. I got to know Jim Rooney and Bill Keith, who has passed away, Bill Keith. He was a very influential banjo pay- player, very influential on me and Steve Martin. And uh, he was a friend. And Jim Rooney came to sit in with me. Well, Bill Keith did too at one time. Uh, Jim Rooney came to sit in with me about 10 years ago up in New Hampshire. That was really fun. Because here's a guy that uh, he was he was a star to me because he was on one of my albums in the 60s, you know. You know, And it was like, hmm. But he uh, later became a friend. When you listen to that, like if you have it on your playlist and you're going to sleep, does it remind you of being in Russia or does it just remind you of a, a, a myriad of things? It's it's an escape. I go to the lyric and I think about, well, one thing about Russia, it was in the month of May. One morning in May is the song. And it one of the reasons it, it connected to me. And it's just a romantic song. If uh, you run into a, a, he runs into a girl and, and I've got a wife in London and children twice three. And, you know, it's two wives in the army. That's what I felt like. Too many for me, and anyway, it was. Uh, and he he did it very well. His enunciation is great. Hmm. Two wives in the army is too many for me, and it was just really good. You can hear every word. Do, and, uh, do you play that song? 
I've played it before. It's been years. But uh, no, I like I liked this version. <laughs> hmm. Do you have a, an account of how many songs you've had a hand in creating over your career? Or is that is that out of your control in terms of knowing? You that I've recorded on or what? Yeah, well, you know, songs, maybe we'll start with, you know, how many songs have you written? Oh, I've only written about a dozen. Okay. But they're, they're pretty good. And I have recorded on about 450. 450. And how many albums have you produced for other people? I think seven or eight. I'll see. Well, it's Jim Billy. Maybe nine. And one of them was the, the Steve Martin's uh, album, uh, 2009, I think. Won a Grammy. What was that like? Yeah, The Crow. <laughs> it was The Crow. Steve, Steve wanted to do an album, and he sent me his – I went and picked up his banjo songs and took them, and it was just his banjo. Played each song through twice, just banjo. And I took that track, and I copy-pasted it, and, and I built – basic tracks under it and sent it back as an example, three of them. You know, I put bass and guitar and some violin and <laughs> he called me back when I sent him the mixes. I didn't take the call. Uh, he called a couple times and left messages. John, would you call me when you call me when you can? I, I, I want, I want to talk to you. And Steve did not talk like that. I want to talk to you about the music. It's fantastic. I had no idea. Anyway, so I just wanted to <laughs> have Mr. Martin wait for a minute. And, and I called him back, and he wanted me to produce the album. I said, Steve, I've got to be the producer. I know what you are. I know you like Aaron Copeland. I know you like Bluegrass. And I know you like Music Man as your favorite play. And I can combine those things into an album. Okay, let's go. And it was a crow. It's called New Songs for the Five Street. He didn't have enough songs. I said, write some more. Hmm. He was talking about doing some, I could do Pretty Polly. I could do, no, don't do any, use, it's got to be all your music, Steve. Come up with, you need three more songs. And he came up with three more songs in the time we were waiting. It came out wonderful. Um, I got to ask about King Tut. I can't let this go by. I can't have this opportunity go by. You, the, the Dirt Band was basically the band that did the King Tut with Steve Martin, right? Yes, sir. What was that like? That's like a cultural icon. I mean, you've, you've been, you're a cultural icon, but I mean, that was, that was like this little flash of magic in that era, it seems to me, as a person who was young when that came out. Yeah, it was 1977. My brother was managing Steve and producing his records. He produced four albums on them and sold nine million copies of his albums. And King Tut came along when Steve came in from Vegas to, to sit in with us. On, we were going to play a song behind him at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in L.A. It was a sold-out show, 2,200 people. And he had this idea for this weird song. And he said, the bass should go boom, 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 boom. And then the guys go, King Todd, King Todd. And then he starts talking. And we worked it up in the dressing room, and we did it on stage, and it blew the room away when we did it on in the show. He came out and did all these weird moves and stuff. It was, it was the first performance of King Todd. 
And a week later, we're in, in Aspen, and my brother says, we got to record King Tut. And there was a sax player in town that we knew, Brian Savage. And, and uh, anyway, the dirt band laid down the track. Steve sang it. It was done in seven hours. Hmm. And uh, Bill made acetates and sent it to radio stations, 20 stations. Warner Brothers wouldn't put out a single. We're not going to put out a comedy single. There's no future in that. So Bill sent to 20 radio stations, like BCN in Boston, QuickC in Atlanta, ABC in New York, and they started playing this acetate, which is only good for maybe 25 plays. Mm-hmm. And some of them copied it over to their to their A-tracks and um, start calling the record company, how many King Tuts have you sold? What? We don't have it as a single. Well, you better. It made it to the top 20 without any product in the market. And then when it came out, it did a million and a half units. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, like I said, it's, it is magic. And I can imagine, like, you guys must have been, uh, you know, that first time you played it with him, it must have been hard not to just crack up because it's just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. It was really fun. <laughs> it was really Okay, so we are we are heading in toward a landing now, John. So, and this is where we get a bit non-traditional. Not that we've been that traditional so far. Um, you ready for a bit of a speed round before we wrap up the show? Bit of a what? A speed round. I'm gonna throw some some random questions at you. Anything you want. Do you do karaoke? Uh, I did one time, but I'm not I'm not a singer uh, that knows a bunch of songs, so. Limited there. Okay. If you were a championship wrestler, John McEwen, what music would you enter on? Oh, uh, a song of mine called Return to Dismal Swamp. (laughs) (laughs) What would your wrestler name be? Uh, 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 This is a a strange question, yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Hmm. You can be Swamp Thing. Uh, well, Big John, I guess. Big John. Um, um, what activities or pursuits make you lose track of time the most? Mixing recordings or editing film. I edit the film that I use in my show, and I swear 12 hours can go by, and it can, I haven't eaten. And I, and it seems like two hours has gone by editing, and... Uh, I, gee, it's dark now. I got to, you know, it, it, that's really a time-dissolving thing. And mixing audio. Have you, um, you know, what was it like for you to move into the world of, you know, digital production? You know, it seems like you've kept up with it. I saw something about you have a mobile Pro Tools rig or something like that. What was that transition like for you? <clears throat> Arduous, uh, daunting, a lot of things to learn, but it's all fairly the computer doesn't make mistakes you do <laughs> hmm. and uh, you never know enough and it was quite a uh, challenge um, is there a person you haven't had a chance to share a stage or a studio with yet who you would really like to John Fogarty hmm. song of my oh go ahead John Fogarty John Fogarty, he's one of my favorite voices. When he came on, you knew it was going to be good. 
song you wish you could hear again for the first time ever? Is there a song yesterday. that yesterday by the Beatles? By the Beatles, yeah. Do you remember the first time you heard it? Yeah, I was on on uh, Garden Grove Boulevard in Garden Grove, California, and it came on and it blew me away. Then I, it was on later, and I played it for my mother, and she goes, "I don't like that song." And I realized year late, years later, yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. It didn't apply to her. I don't know how it applied to me, but. It was just a moving song. Chord changes were great. Instrumentation, everything. Hmm. Um, do you have a nickname that's stuck over the course of your life that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? Oh, none, really. Uh, Nitty Gritty John, John is what a lot of people call me, but not that often. Nitty Gritty John. What would your 14-year-old self there in Southern California think of, of who you are today and how your life has played out? Who do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, I, I don't know. It's, uh, that's what comes to mind. It's like, it's like, how could you do all that stuff? You're a dork. You don't know anything. When I was 14, I had a few things going for me, you know, but I didn't think I could get any recognition or make anything or do anything. And, uh, it was a strange time. Hmm. Um, still doing any magic tricks? Occasionally, yes. Or something you don't forget. What's your go-to? Like if you're at a party, is there one you can pull out of a, a, a hat or, you know, out of your pocket? I like certain card tricks. Ones where somebody picks his, divides all the reds and blacks without looking at them. They just tell me and I put the cards down and then I turn them over and they're all, they were right on every selection. Red, red, black, red, black, black, red, red, black. That really freaks people out. Hmm. Or or the one where, you know, you <clears throat> you have them turn the card over they think is is theirs and it's not and then the other one is. And there's stuff like that. Hmm. Okay. Rope, tr- rope tricks are fun. Okay, well, it is time for you to recommend those three people that you'd like to uh, to give a shout-out to that we'll try to get on the show. Who are they? Well, you know, I, I hesitate to do that because I, what if they say no or what if they don't want to do it or what if they uh, – Well, that's okay. We, we ask every guest for three, and that's more than we can ever get to, so it's not as if we're going to be able to get to everybody. Rodney Dillard – well, he'd be quite compelling. He's the reason I am in the music business. He's the first guy I saw play that excited me from the Dillards in 1963 when I saw them at a club. The Dillards. Uh, Jay Robert, if you don't mind doing somebody that's just local. Oh, we would, yeah, we would, we would love if it's, that makes it easier for us. Okay, well, Jay Robert lives on Marco Island, and he has a, a wealth of music, a wealth of music. He, he plays steel drums. He bakes them himself. He's a great, great fiddle player, plays guitar and slide guitar, and he's a real musical genius guy that lives on Marco Island. And, and, he'll, be, and he'll be at your gig at the Sydney and Burn, so we'll, we can try to yeah. make that connection then. Okay, that's great. Is there a third one? I'm trying to remember who the third one was. 
We'll get Jay Robert. Mention it to the other guys so maybe they can listen. This is really just a marketing ploy on our part, like you just said. It's yeah. just a, a chance for us to get guests to tell people they were on a show. So, um, well, you've done it, John. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with? We really appreciate you taking so much time and telling us so many so, so stupendous stories. Hey, I hope I see you at the Sydney Byrne Art Center with Les Thompson and Danny Nicely and Jay Robert. We're going to have a hot time playing nitty-gritty music and circle be unbroken songs and stuff like that. I'm bringing my guitar, banjo, mandolin, and fiddle. I will be there. I'll be the guy that looks like he normally doesn't go out of a radio studio. So I'll, I'll, I'll see you then, John. Oh, and by the way, I'll be at McCurdy's Comedy Theater, downtown Sarasota. That's on February 6th. That's going to be a fun show, too. Thank you so much for your time. We, we appreciate it so much. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Get a fast car. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and she hosts. Our production assistant is Jared the Intern Gonzalez. Chris Duffus is executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. I thought up this week's parting tune a few nights ago when I was surfing through Reddit and came across a magical and intense performance by Tracy Chapman of her song Fast Car at Wembley Stadium in London in 1988. The place was packed with at least 90,000 people. It was a tribute concert for Nelson Mandela. Out comes 24-year-old Tracy, just her and her guitar in front of all those people. Fast Car had just been released, so she was pretty darn unknown standing there facing that crowd. You could just feel her nerves. They were right there on the surface, but man, did she hold it together and capture that crowd with that song. Funny thing was, I was immediately transported back to the McDonald's I worked at for my first job when I was just 16 years old that same year, 1988, because Fast Car was on heavy rotation while I was working the grill, and so that song will forever be tied to that time in my life. Don't you just love how musical time travel works? Keep listening.